Chapter 118 of Varney the Vampire, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varney the Vampire, Volume 2, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter 118 The Baron's Preparations for the Marriage and the Wedding Morning. During this time neither Mrs. Williams nor the Baron Stolmuir were idle spectators of the progress of the hours, but, on the contrary, they made the best possible use of the week which was to elapse before the marriage ceremony took place after Helen had given her consent to it. Five hundred pounds in the hands of such a person as Mrs. Williams will go a long way and produce an amazing amount of show and glitter, so that she managed, before the day on which the ceremony was to be performed arrived, to make quite certain that herself and her daughters would present a most dazzling appearance, and she thought it not at all improbable that even at the very church some meritorious individual might be dazzled into thinking of matrimony with one of her other daughters, upon seeing what a brilliant appearance they managed to present upon the marriage of Helen. "'I am quite sure that no harm can come of it,' she said, "'if no good does, and at all events, if no good is done at the church,' the baron will soon be giving parties enough to bring out the dear girls to perfection, particularly as I fully intend we shall all live at Enderbury House. Mrs. Williams considered this as a settled point, whether the baron liked it or not, and, knowing as she did the gentle and quiet disposition of Helen, she did not doubt for a moment of being permitted to rule completely over the domestic affairs of her establishment. All this was amazingly satisfactory to such a lady as Mrs. Williams, and the very thing of all others she would have liked, had she been looking out for what would please her in the marriage of her daughter. We shall shortly see how these views and opinions were verified by the fact. All the other preparations were left to the baron, and when he wrote a letter to Mrs. Williams, saying that he would be ready by ten o'clock on the morning which had been named for the nuptials, and would send one of his carriages for the bride, Mrs. Williams was perfectly satisfied that all was quite correct. There was no very good excuse for calling at Anderbury House, but if she had then called, she certainly would have been astonished at the preparations which the Baron was making for that day which was so near at hand. It was quite terrific the expense he went to in the gorgeous manner in which he fitted up one of the largest apartments in the house, for a dance looked really like expenditure of the most reckless character, and such as indeed it must have required an immense fortune to withstand. The walls of that apartment were hung with crimson draperies of a rich texture, and such beauty of design that they were the admiration of the very workmen themselves who were employed upon the premises. Then the magnificent order he gave for a feast upon the occasion, and the wines he laid in, really almost exceeded belief, and such proceedings were indeed highly calculated to give people most exaggerated versions regarding his wealth. He had indeed mentioned to Mrs. Williams that he had silver mines on some of his estates abroad and that fact to her mind was quite sufficient to account for any amount of money he might possess, because, to her ideas of geology and mineralogy, the discovery of a silver mine meant finding a hole of immense width and depth crammed with the precious metal. But, be this as it may, and whether the Baron Stolmuir of Salzburg owed his wealth to silver mines or to other sources, one thing was quite clear, and that was that he had it. And that was the grand point for in a highly civilized and evangelical country like this, the question of how a man got his money is not near so often asked as, has he got it? And it is quite amazing what liberality of feeling and sentiment is immediately infused into people by the fact of successful speculation of any kind, while failure immediately incurs 
the greatest of opprobrium and contempt. And now the day was so close at hand that Mrs. Williams got into a terrible flutter of spirits, and began really to wish it over, for she was completely ready, and each minute became an hour of impatience to her. She was continually bothering the baron with notes and messages upon different subjects, and he had the urbanity to answer two or three of them, but he soon left that off, and the last half-dozen, at the least, were, to Mrs. Williams's great mortification, taken no notice of at all. Some of these notes were upon the most nonsensical points, and several of them, although they did not actually ask it, pretty strongly hinted that more money would be a very desirable thing. The baron would not understand any hint, however, upon the subject, so that Mrs. Williams became fully convinced that she must make the best of it she could, and put up for the present with the five hundred pounds she had already received. But when the day had actually dawned on which the suspicious event was to come off, and upon looking around her, she found herself surrounded by gay apparel and jewelry, she almost dreaded that even yet it would turn out to be some delusion, or a dream, for she could scarcely believe in the reality of such glory and magnificence belonging to her. But facts are stubborn things, and, whether for good or for evil, are not likely to be got over. So, when she looked out of the windows and saw that a bright morning sun was shining, and that the life, animation, and bustle of the day was commencing, she told herself that it was, indeed, real, and that she had reached very nearly the summit of her desires and expectations. Yes, she exclaimed, I shall be mother-in-law to a baron, and I dare say I shall have at least twenty servants in Anderbury House to command and control continually. A more gratifying reflection than this could not possibly have presented itself to Mrs. Williams, for if any one thing could be more delightful than another, it certainly was that kind of petty power which gives an individual a control over a large establishment. After she had arisen on that eventful morning, she did not allow her establishment many minutes' repose, but in the course of half an hour all was bustle, excitement, and no small share of confusion. And while she was thus energetically pushing on her preparations, let us see what the Bannerworths are about, now that they have fairly arrived at Inderbury, and are in readiness, probably, to be present at the ceremony. By Flora's intercession, a peace was established between Jack and the Admiral, and the former took the latter down to the old seaman's cottage in order to introduce him to James Anderson, and on the road he made him acquainted with the particulars of the young man's story, at the same time informing him of the wish that Anderson had expressed to be permitted to join their party. "'Oh, certainly,' said the Admiral, "'certainly. Let him come by all means, although I must say that he ought to leave for London at once with his dispatches, or at all events with the news that he had lost them. However, I am not on active service, and therefore have no right to do anything more than advise him in the matter.' "'Oh, he will go,' said Jack, "'as soon as he has seen his sweetheart, and perhaps kick the Baron, for though he said he wouldn't, I live in hopes yet that he will be aggravated enough to do it.' The Admiral liked James Anderson so much that he not only promised him he should go to the wedding under cover of the general invitation which he, the Admiral, had received, but he proposed, likewise, that he should come home with him at once and be introduced to the Bannerworths, and by home he meant the inn at Anderbury, where they were staying. The young man expressed himself highly gratified at this invitation, and at once accepted it, so that they walked towards the inn together and began to make preparations for their appearance at Anderbury House. Flora and the Bannerworths, as well as Charles, received young Anderson very graciously, and they each expressed to him their sympathy for the painful situation in which the Baron's marriage was placing him. Flora and Charles Holland, as may be well supposed, could both feel, 
and feel acutely, too, for any one crossed in his affection, as poor James Anderson was, and it certainly much damped the satisfaction they had in going to what everybody told them would certainly be the most brilliant wedding that had taken place in that part of the country for many a year. "'Let us hope,' said Henry Bannerworth, "'that you will find some other, Mr. Anderson, who will be more worthy of your esteem than she who has treated so lightly your affection and her own faith.' "'I know not,' said Anderson, "'whether to accuse her or not. For who knows, but after all, she may be the victim of treachery, notwithstanding the apparent powerful evidence that has been given to me by her mother. The Bannerworth family were determined, and so was the Admiral, that they would bestow what credit they could upon those who had so kindly invited them, and, accordingly, when they started for the hall in the handsome carriage which had brought them down to Anderbury, they certainly presented a rather showy and attractive appearance. But still, when they reached the entrance to Anderbury House, they found that theirs was by no means the only equipage of the kind that was there to be seen, for although both the entrances were open for the reception of guests, they had to wait a considerable time before they could get up to either of them. One hundred and fifty guests, sixty or eighty of whom kept equipages, were calculated to make some little degree of confusion, but when the Bannerworth family fairly got within the house, everything else was forgotten in their admiration of the brilliant arrangements within. The richest carpets were laid down that money could purchase, and servants in gorgeous liveries ushered the guests into an immense hall in which the marriage ceremony was to take place, and which was decorated with a splendor that was perfectly regal. And here a new set of domestics glided noiselessly about with various refreshments upon silver salvers, and the place began rapidly to fill with such an assemblage of wealth and beauty and rank as perhaps scarcely ever had been congregated in one place before. But among those whose beauty attracted much attention, we may need well reckon our friend Flora Bell, as she was now properly called, and whose sweet countenance was the cause of many a passing observation, couched in the most flattering terms. It wanted yet an hour to the time of the ceremony being performed, and the Bannerworths, as they saw that their companion, young Anderson, was in a painful state of excitement, all sat down in the deep recess of a large window to wait the coming of the bride and bridegroom. "'I don't think, Mr. Anderson,' said Henry, "'that your coming here at all was a well-advised step. "'But since you are here, you should muster up resolution enough "'not to betray any feeling.' "'I will not betray it, although I feel it,' said Anderson. "'Rely upon it that I shall look much firmer, and act much firmer, "'when she whom I wish to see is actually here, than I do at present. "'I am enduring suspense now, and that is the worst of all.' "'I do wish,' interposed Flora, "'that you had seen her whom you love before the ceremony.' for in that case, although you might have endured the pang of finding that she was willing to call herself another's, you would have been spared the pain of this day's proceeding. I wish to heaven I had seen her, but I knew not how to arrange such a meeting, and when I was shown in her own handwriting, which I knew too well to doubt, a consent to be the wife of another, I no longer had the spirit and the perseverance to ask to see her, and it was an afterthought that made me wish to look upon her face once more before I left her forever." "'What?' said Jack Pringle, suddenly making his appearance. "'Is he gammoning you with his feelings?' "'Oh, so you have got in, have you?' said the Admiral. "'So I have got in. Why, what do you mean by that? Of course I have got in. Wasn't I invited? I do think you get a little stupider every day, and in a course of time you won't know what you are about. I should not be surprised to see you take out your handkerchief to blow your eye instead of your nose.' Latterly, Jack, when he made one of these speeches, always walked away very quickly 
leaving the admiral's anger to evaporate as best it might, so that he escaped the retort which otherwise he might have received. End of chapter 118 Read by Richard Wallace, Liberty, Missouri, 5 May 2009